Thanks. Okay, so today's reading is Galatians 1, 11 to chapter 2, verse 14. So I'll give you a second to flip or scroll or do whatever it is you do. Okay. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. If you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before... Wait, well, yeah. Before those were apostles, before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw nothing of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Silica. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea there that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. And after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to Revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. And not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We do not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the, to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Thanks, David, and good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning. Keep your Bibles or your phones open to that passage. You can also follow along on the leaflet. The leaflet's got most of the passage and an outline as well, if you got one of those as you came in. Have you ever been in a situation where you've had your integrity or your version of events called into question? I'm fairly confident most of us have probably been in that situation at some point or another. Well, that's where the Apostle Paul 
finds himself as he writes this letter to the Galatian church. Now, Paul had preached the gospel message in Galatia. People had believed it. The church had been established there. But then false teachers had come. They had discredited Paul and they proclaimed a message that was different to his. They told the Galatians, don't trust what Paul says. Paul's gospel, it's not the real deal. He's changed the real message into something that people will accept more easily. And sadly, many of the Galatians believe this. They reject Paul's gospel and they follow this false gospel. So Paul needs to respond to what's been said because the gospel message is at stake. People's salvation is at stake. This is literally an issue of life and death. Paul wants the Galatian church to know that there is one true gospel message given by God himself, which cannot be compromised in any way. He wants them to be clear on the origin of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and the application of the gospel. So firstly, Paul wants them to know that the origin of the gospel message he preaches is from Jesus Christ himself. Paul hasn't heard this message from someone else and and made a few tweaks to it along the way. His gospel is the real deal, and he has the God-given authority to teach it. Paul reminds them of the the events of his early ministry, which line up with what we read about Paul in the book of Acts, if you're around for our Acts series earlier this year. And he wants them to see that his ministry was not influenced by people, but by God. He reminds them of his dramatic conversion in Acts chapter 9, when he receives the gospel from Jesus and a call from God to preach it to the Gentiles, that is, anyone who's not a Jew. And when he received this call, he didn't go to the apostles in Jerusalem to compare notes and and check with them, Um, but he, he went to Arabia and then Damascus where he preached the gospel before going to Jerusalem three years after his conversion. Now, he stayed there in Jerusalem for just 15 days. Peter and James are the only key leaders of the church who he spoke with, so Cephas is Peter's Greek name. And it's only after 14 years that he returns to Jerusalem again. So you can see the point Paul's making here, can't you? His gospel wasn't influenced by the Jerusalem church or by anyone else. The message he's been preaching is the message he's received from Jesus. He's a genuine apostle. He's been sent by Jesus to proclaim the gospel message. And this is something that the Jerusalem church leaders acknowledge as well. In chapter two, they recognize, verses seven and eight, that Paul has been raised up as an apostle to the Gentiles, just as Peter is an apostle to the Jews. Now, just to be clear here, Paul's life story, it's not describing what a typical Christian life should look like, receiving a revelation and then going solo with evangelism and not seeking instruction from anyone else. That's, that's not the point here. It's showing the extraordinary way that God worked in Paul, that God revealed himself to Paul and used him to proclaim the gospel. And it gives both the Galatian church back then and us today as well, confidence that Paul's gospel is thoroughly in line with who Jesus is and what Jesus taught. Now, perhaps for people you know, or maybe for even you personally, you think, well, I'm all for Jesus. He was, he was great, loving, tolerant guy. But some of the other stuff that the Bible says, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Well, what we see in Galatians chapter 1 is that we can't choose to follow Jesus but reject Paul. Because the gospel Paul preaches is the gospel he received from Jesus. 
Now, I'm sure I'll offend someone here, but I'll, I'll put it out there. Per- personally, I'm not a huge fan of those red-letter Bibles. You can get, you know, the, the Bibles that have all of Jesus' words in red font, um, partly because I'm colorblind, so I can't actually <laughs> tell the difference between the red and the black font, so it doesn't, doesn't really help me a whole lot. Um, but also because the whole Bible is God's word to us. So Jesus' words shouldn't be elevated above Paul's because Paul's words are Jesus' words, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we can, and in fact we must, have confidence that the gospel message that we have today in the Bible is the real deal. It's something that Jesus has revealed to us. Paul wants us to be clear on the origin of the gospel, and he wants us to be clear on the truth of the gospel as well. He tells the Galatians, look, my message, it wasn't influenced by the apostles in Jerusalem, but it's still the same gospel as theirs. He tells them in in chapter 2 how he went to Jerusalem. It it lines up with Acts chapter 11, where Paul was sent by the the Gentile churches with a gift of money to help the Jewish churches who were going through a famine at that time. He meets with James, Peter, and and John, the, the key leaders of the Jerusalem church. And he wants to know is the gospel that I'm preaching to the Gentiles the same one that you guys are preaching to the Jews? Or am I running my race in vain? Now, I take it that Paul isn't doubting his own gospel here. He's, he's heard it directly from Jesus. There's not much more confidence he could have. He wants to make sure that the Jerusalem church has got it right. Otherwise, the unity of the church is fractured right from the start. What is Paul's gospel message? Well, he declares it in chapter 2, verse 16, just after where our reading finished off. A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. A person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That is, it's impossible for a person to be acceptable before God based on their own goodness, because we're all tainted by sin. And so the only way to be right before God, to be saved, to have our sins forgiven, it's through faith in Jesus, which means believing that Jesus died to to take on himself the punishment that my sins deserved, trusting that he was raised back to life and committing to living with him as my king, turning away from a life that doesn't honor him. If you're here this morning just just checking church out, working out what it's all about to be a Christian, well, well, this is it. We come to God through faith in Jesus alone. It's not by our own works. This message was being challenged though. It wasn't just being challenged in Galatia, it was being challenged in Jerusalem. False believers had come, Paul says in verse four, to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, to make us slaves. What they were teaching was that to be saved, you needed not just faith in Jesus, but you needed to follow the Jewish law as well. You had to obey the food laws. If you were a man, you had to be circumcised. Basically, you had to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Now, can you see how this is different from the gospel that Paul was preaching? This is the issue that would later be debated at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Paul's message is that we're saved by faith in Jesus alone. The other message, though, is the the other gospel is that we're saved by faith in Jesus plus this and this and this and this. Can you see the difference between those two? And Paul recognizes this as threatening gospel freedom. The gospel brings us the freedom of not needing to obey the law 
in order to know that we're saved. The, the freedom of not having to wonder if I've done enough to please God because Jesus' death was enough. The false gospel, it brings the slavery of thinking that I need to obey the law to be saved. The slavery of never quite knowing if I've done enough to please God. And Paul, of course, stirs up the hornet's nest even more by bringing along Titus, who was a Gentile Christian. Now, according to Paul's gospel, Titus is saved by his faith in Jesus alone. But according to the other gospel, Titus needs to be circumcised to even be considered a Christian. So you can imagine that Titus was listening quite intently as, as Paul met with the apostles and compared his message with theirs. There's so much at stake here. And not just for Titus either. The, the unity of the church depends on whether they're proclaiming the same gospel. So if Paul is preaching one gospel to the Gentiles and Peter is preaching a different gospel to the Jews, then unity in the gospel is impossible because there's two different gospels. This could well be the most important church meeting that's ever taken place. And Paul confirms, verse six, that the apostles had nothing to add to his message. They were preaching the same gospel. They were on the same page. In fact, they recognized Paul's calling as an apostle to the Gentiles. They expressed fellowship with Paul and Barnabas. They didn't give in to the false teachers, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Now, Paul clearly wasn't starstruck at meeting the apostles. Look at what he says there. Whatever they were makes no difference, Paul says. God doesn't show favoritism. Paul, Paul's not particularly impressed by who they are. But he wants the Galatians to know that his gospel, it lines up perfectly with the men who knew Jesus, who were taught by Jesus, and who were witnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection. There's no contradiction between the Gospels. And there's no room for compromise either. See, the Gospel is about people being saved. And so the truth of the Gospel matters. Anything that deviates from or, or diminishes this Gospel message is dangerous. Because it's a denial that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone. It enslaves us with the responsibility for our own salvation. And so we need to be careful of anything we hear or anything that creeps into our own beliefs that denies the gospel. What's the best way to guard ourselves from this? Well, it's to immerse ourselves in the real thing, to remind ourselves of it day in, day out, so that when someone adds to this message or changes this message, we won't be fooled. When someone tells us that to be saved, we need to be baptized, take communion, speak in tongues, go to a particular church denomination, or contribute anything of our own doing, we won't be fooled. When someone says that a loving God would never judge people, or that God just wants us to treat other people well and we'll be saved, we won't be fooled. We stand firm, and we help others to stand firm as well by being crystal clear on the gospel that a person is not justified by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The origin and the truth of the gospel matter, Paul says. And so does the application of the gospel. It needs not only to be believed, but, but to be faithfully lived out. We're to preach the same gospel with our lives that we do with our lips. 
Now, notice firstly that when Paul, Peter, James, and John, when they realize that they agree on the gospel, the next natural step is mission. We're agreed on this? Great. Let's keep reaching people with this good news. Peter and co. commit to reaching the Jews with the gospel. Paul and Barnabas, they focus on reaching the Gentiles. The gospel message compels them outwards, and the gospel message compels us outwards as well. Heaven and hell are on the line. This is something that people desperately need to know. It's not a message that the church can just sit on. It's why as a, as a network, we plant churches because we want to reach people, reach more people with this life-saving news. It's why our prayerful vision here at Allgate is to plant again further into the hills because the gospel message compels us. We want to see people saved for Jesus. Paul and the Jerusalem leaders, they agree not just on the need for mission, but on caring for the poor as well. Verse 10, Paul had made this trip originally to bring aid to those in need. So that this was an expression of fellowship between the Gentile believers and, and the Jewish believers. And the apostles tell Paul, look, you go to the Gentiles, we'll go to the Jews, but we still need to care for one another. We're united, not just in the content of the gospel, but in living it out by loving and providing for one another. And so we apply the gospel message by loving each other and by seeking to reach more people. Those are the natural outflows of the gospel. And then, of course, we get to this confrontation between Paul and Peter. Paul recounts this perhaps partly to explain why he and Peter had come into conflict. There were probably rumors going around of a fight between Paul and Peter, and the false teachers would probably have used that to discredit Paul. But he also uses this to show the danger of denying the gospel in our lives. God had revealed to Peter that the gospel was for both Jews and Gentiles, and also that the food restrictions under the old law were no longer binding. Uh, we read about that in Acts 10 and 11 with, with Peter and Cornelius. And so as you'd expect, Peter eats with Gentile Christians. We, we read there in verse 12. He's, he's right to do that. There's no reason for him not to eat with Gentile Christians. But he stops doing that when he's visited by a group of people, a group of people who think that you have to become a Jew to become a Christian. And so Peter separates himself from the Gentiles because of these people. And he influences others to do the same thing. This, this becomes something that runs throughout the church. And Paul sees this and he calls it out for the hypocrisy that it is. See, Peter knew and believed the true gospel. With his lips, he was preaching a gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus alone. Yet in his actions, he was living out a gospel of slavery to the law. He wasn't acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Forcing Gentiles to obey Jewish customs was a denial of the gospel. He's effectively telling the Gentile Christians, you have to become a Jew first to become a Christian. To be saved, you have to have faith in Jesus, plus this and this and this and this. And that's not the gospel. The question for us is whether we're preaching the right gospel with our lips, but preaching a different gospel with our lives. Or even just holding in some way to a different gospel in our hearts. Are we imposing anything on people that the gospel doesn't? Now, I think it can be really easy to drift into a way of thinking that my way of being a Christian is the right way. You know, the, the way I go about it is the completely right way. Everyone else just gets it wrong in little ways, but I'm the one who's, who's got it right. 
or that our church has perfected the way that you do church. The, the church has been meeting for 2,000 years, but our church here is the one that's finally just, just nailed how church is meant to be run. Before we look down on other people and other churches, we have to remember that the core essential thing is believing and living out the gospel message. And I think part of the beauty of church is that we can actually be different. We can have different tastes to one another in the songs that we sing. We can do different things with our hands while we're singing those songs. We can be completely different in in a thousand other ways. And yet we can still be firmly united in the one thing that truly matters, and that is the gospel message. We can also deny the gospel by going the other way, though, by using the gospel as a license for sin. Jesus has died for me. It's all good. It doesn't matter if I sin. I can just ask for forgiveness. That attitude is a denial of the gospel. I mean, there's a truth in it, but the attitude itself is a, is a denial of the gospel because it denies the seriousness of sin and the lengths that God had to go to to cover the cost of our sin, the death of his own son. Now, perhaps you find that a bit confusing. We're, we're being told that we're saved um, by, because of Jesus, not by obeying God, but then we're told that we have to obey God as well. So, so what's, what's, what's going on here? Do we have to obey God to be saved? Well, let's be clear here. The only way that we can be declared right in God's sight and come into a relationship with him is by Jesus dying for us and taking the punishment for our sins. There's no other way, and there's nothing that we can add to that either. It's not as though our salvation costs $1,000, Jesus' death is worth about $900, and we just have to fund the rest from our own piggy bank. It's not like that at all. But we're only saved if we accept this by faith, by repenting of our sin, turning away from it, trusting that Jesus has done what's needed and entering into a personal relationship with him. And the sincerity of that faith is expressed in living a life through the the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit that honours God and reflects the way that the Bible calls us to live. We're saved by faith, not by works. But it's our works that prove our faith to be genuine. A bit like I can say every day how much I love Alicia, my wife, but if I never do anything at all that reflects that, then you'd have to seriously question the genuineness of that statement. I don't think there's a completely perfect way I can think of to illustrate it, but imagine I was to buy Michelle a plane ticket to Hawaii. If you imagine a parallel universe where you're allowed to fly to Hawaii and where I can, where I can afford a plane ticket, that's probably, just, just, just imagine that. Um, that ticket is a free gift from me to Michelle. There's, there's nothing she's done to earn it. She hasn't earned her way to being a passenger on that plane. She steps onto that plane completely because of what I've done. But there are expectations of her once she becomes a passenger on that plane, that, that she'll wear her seatbelt, she'll keep her phone off, she won't smoke. And in the same way, we don't earn our salvation. It's a gift that Jesus has provided, but we do live in response to it. We need to have crystal clarity on what the gospel is. We're justified by faith in Jesus alone. We contribute nothing. We can be confident that this gospel has been given to us by Jesus himself. And we cannot compromise the truth of this gospel. There's too much at stake for any sort of compromise when it comes to the gospel. 
That's Paul's burden for the Galatian church. And it's equally important for us as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel message. We, we thank you that we can have confidence that it is true, that it, is, it has come not from a made-up legend or a story, not from someone's imagination, but from Jesus himself. Please help us to cling to it. Please help us to have complete clarity on the truth of the gospel, that we're justified, not in any way by our own works, but by faith in your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. And we ask that our lives would reflect the gospel, that this would be a message that we proclaim with our lips and that we live out in our lives as well, that there would be no compromise, no inconsistency, and that in all this, you would be glorified. Amen. Well, thanks so much, Mark, for taking us through that bit. One thing that really sharpens me as I listen uh, to someone preaching is I'm trying, in my head, I try and think, what would happen if this part of the Bible was ripped out? It, what, what would I miss if I never heard someone explain this part of the Bible to me? It helps me really listen attentively and sharply. And then to know how to pray. So we're gonna pray now, let's pray. Our loving Father in heaven, we thank you so much. Um, first of all, that you converted Paul. And we thank you that you sent him out to be our apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that the message that was revealed to him when he was converted was um, you know, the, the same one that the other apostles were preaching. And we praise you that Jesus is at the heart of that, the resurrected, glorious, ascended Lord Jesus that Paul saw on the road to Damascus when he was converted and changed. And we praise you, Heavenly Father, that it is entirely by grace. Here he was a persecutor of the church and he stopped and converted. He didn't earn this at all. And we praise you that it is law-free. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he was legalistically righteous and yet he was persecuting you. What a blind alley that was. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we're not saved by things we do. Thank you that we are saved by Jesus Christ and what he has done. Father, thank you that your grace comes to us through him. Um, and thank you that faith in him, because he did everything for us, that's enough. We don't need to add to it. Our loving Father, we give you the glory because he is worth it. And through him, you've saved us. And we thank you so much. Our loving Father, today on Mother's Day, we want to give thanks for those, uh, for, for our mums. Uh, thank you for their love and their care for us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd keep blessing everyone at church through the mums in faith, the many, many mums in faith. And for all the, the girls, the women here, may they grow to be those godly women who invest their lives in others uh, for your glory and who are other person-centered and encouragers and selfless and servants. And for all those people like that, we praise you and we thank you so much for those who've cared for us. Our great God, we pray for our church from uh, the Bible passage today. We pray that just as um, you know, people came out from Jerusalem and were preaching a different gospel, they were adding to it, this would never happen here. And we pray also that um, just as Peter subtly was preaching a different gospel through his actions, not through his words, by 
distancing himself from Gentile believers. We pray that we wouldn't do the same. Help us not to subtly preach a different gospel through our actions. We pray rather that we would live out the truth of the gospel, um, that we would have fellowship with all who believe uh, regardless and we wouldn't kind of add other requirements. You have to dress a certain way, you have to be cool, you have to sing a certain way or you know, be of a certain nationality. Please keep us from such hypocrisy because you are the God who doesn't show favoritism. Our loving Father, uh, we want to pray and praise you for our basement youth program. We thank you for the leaders who give up their Friday nights and other time as well. And thank you that they do it faithfully. And we pray for all who come, the youth who come. Thank you. Each one is precious to you. Help them because, you know, being a Christian at high school is so hard. So please help them to persevere. Help them not to give up. May other people at church, may we be their role models and may we persevere for their encouragement and please help them to be shining lights at high school. Help them not to be ashamed of the son of man at high school, which is very hard. So please encourage them in faith. Uh, Please may you help them to persevere in Bible reading so that they themselves would grow in faith and understanding. And please help them to persevere in prayerfulness as well. And help them to walk that path of godliness, which is tricky. I mean, it's tricky at every decade, but particularly in in teens. So please help them, Heavenly Father. And Lord, we want to pray for the, um, the world. Our heart breaks for the immense suffering that's happening around the world. Um... Of course, there's the, the coronavirus, the immense, the, the huge number of deaths in India and Brazil, Mexico, still the US. And this is a tragic situation. And yet we know it shines a huge light, of course, on the tragedy of someone be, uh, dying without you or being lost. And we pray, great God, that people in their fear of death would call out to the one who has defeated death and gone through And we pray that you'd give a generosity of heart to Christians. We pray for all health workers around the world um, that you'd help them to persevere and you'd give them the strength um, that they need when they are so depleted in looking after many others. Please help them. And particularly be with the Christian health workers. May they lean upon you. And please, please uh, help them as, as they confront difficult situations every single day. Um, loving God we pray for um, the growth of the gospel in Adelaide we, 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 we pray for Trinity Church Mount Barker and Trinity Church Victor Harbour we thank you for the, um, the wives time away over the last few days and we pray for Keely uh, Scott Maxwell's wife and we pray for Miriam Andrews Duncan's wife and we pray that these women who serve and give so much that they would be encouraged and you'd, you'd help them uh, to keep providing leadership and, you know, and servant-heartedness at their church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And we've got a, a, a Thanksgiving prayer which uh, should come up now. I'm gonna ask everyone to say this together. Gracious God, we humbly thank you for all your gifts so freely given to us for life and health and safety for power to work, leisure to rest, 
and for all that is beautiful in creation and human life. But above all, we praise you for our Saviour, Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection, for the gift of your Spirit, and for the hope of sharing in your glory. Fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you. I'm going to ask the musos to come up now. And, um, you know, traditionally, there was a time before COVID when, you know, in the last song, kind of a bag would be passed around. And this was both a joyful and a cringy time. It was cringy because, you know, if you didn't want to give any money, you know, here was the moment when you're kind of, you know, on the spot. But a joyful time when you could give money. We, we're not doing that in COVID times, but we are so grateful to everyone who gives generously and sacrificially to keep our church going. Thank you for that. Um, if you're not doing that and you would like to, um, organize, get yourself organized and that, there's the details up there. Okay, we're going to sing our last song together. Please stand.
Let's